first reading today is from Acts 4, verses 32 to 35, and can be, pa- can be found on page 1096. The believers share their possessions. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them, For from time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who was in need. This is the word of the Lord. Feel comfortable to do so, would you stand as Joshua brings us our gospel reading from John. Today's Gospel is taken from John 20, verses 19 to the end. This can be found on page 1089. Hear the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, His disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord, my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his, of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. This is the Gospel of our Lord. Please take a seat. Shall we pray? Lord, as we meet together this morning to worship you, to pray and to hear your word, may we encounter you and may we know your presence with us 
as we go forward through the week. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, as I often do around that time of year, I sat down in front of the telly with mum and dad to watch the annual Oxford and Cambridge boat races. The races themselves weren't really all that interesting. I don't know if you saw them, but uh, in both the main races, the Cambridge team took an early lead and stretched it out to win by some distance. But I always enjoy watching it anyway. I enjoy the tradition and the atmosphere. And one thing that I always find fascinating is to compare the crews at the end of the race. The losing crew looks shattered. The contest is gruelling and physically exhausting. They've poured everything into the race. They've been preparing for the last year. And the disappointment of defeat is devastating. They sit in their boat, shoulders hunched, eyes downcast, struggling to breathe and barely able to move. Those in the winning boat have put in the same physical effort. Arguably, even greater given that they won. They should be equally exhausted. But the joy and exhilaration of victory seems to give them renewed energy. They raise their eyes to the heavens and shout for joy. They hug and congratulate each other. Some even perform the difficult feat of standing in their wobbly and unstable rowing boat to acknowledge the crowds watching from the riverbank. All the crews will likely have started their day in much the same way. How differently might the day end for the winning and losing crews, though, I wonder? The winning crews, I suspect, might go out and party into the night, enjoying the praise and adulation that will inevitably be coming their way. The losing crews, on the other hand, I suspect they might creep off home for a quiet night in. I suspect they might lock themselves away from the world, either on their own or with a select few people that they feel they can trust. However wide the margins in the end, it makes a big difference whether you're on the winning or the losing team. I don't know about you, but I'm not much of a rower myself. But I'm sure we've all experienced the pain of defeat and the joy of victory at some point in our lives. And so we can empathise with the boat race crews. And perhaps we can empathise with the disciples in today's reading. They'd been following Jesus for some time, watching what he did and listening to what he said. They had slowly begun to believe that he was the Messiah, the anointed one that the prophets had spoken of, who would free his people from captivity. It was only a few days ago that he had ridden into Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna, a word used to praise the one who had come to save God's people. This was it. This was the big contest they had been preparing for. Jesus was going to take on the Roman governors and the religious leaders, and he was going to win. And they were going to be on the winning team. Except that things didn't quite turn out the way they expected them to. Jesus was betrayed by one of his own. They hadn't seen that coming. Jesus was arrested and sentenced and killed. And suddenly, being on Jesus' team didn't seem like such a good idea after all. They feared the authorities would be out to get them next. They were defeated. They were shattered. And they were scared. Eyes downcast, they hid themselves away behind locked doors. And to top it all, 
Jesus' body had disappeared. Mary Magdalene, Peter and John had all seen the empty tomb with their own eyes. Mary swore that she'd seen Jesus alive, that he had spoken to her. But that's impossible. It couldn't be true, could it? Then Jesus appeared among them. He greets them, saying, peace be with you. The word he uses is almost certainly shalom, which, as Jody has explained before, means so much more than is adequately conveyed in our translation. Yes, it conveys a sense of peace, a lack of fear. But it also conveys a sense of wholeness, of healing and salvation. The disciples were overjoyed. Suddenly, they knew that they were on the winning team after all. Seeing the resurrected Jesus transformed them. And Jesus sent them out. As the Father has sent me, he said, I am sending you. And then something interesting happens. I don't know if you noticed. Verse 22 says, And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but I always thought the disciples received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost which is a little bit later on. That's what Luke tells us in Acts. But John appears to be telling us that they received the Holy Spirit here. I mean, I suppose Jesus might have just meant, receive the Holy Spirit in a few weeks' time when I'm going to send it to you. But in that case, why did he breathe on them first? I mean, that would just be a bit weird, wouldn't it? I don't know the answer to that, by the way. But I wonder if there's a clue in what happens a week later. Thomas, we are told, was not with the other disciples when Jesus came. Poor old Thomas. He'll be forever known as Doubting Thomas because he refused to believe the other disciples' miraculous account of Jesus' appearance before them. But I think there are a few points that often get overlooked in this passage. First, the fact that Thomas was not there when the other disciples were gathered together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders. Where was he? Perhaps he was hiding away somewhere on his own with the doors locked. Or maybe he was the only one of the disciples brave enough to go outside and face the world. Second, a week later, after the other disciples have seen the risen Jesus, they were all gathered together in the same house again. And the doors were still locked. I don't think we should underestimate the significance of the locked doors. It's tempting to think that the locked doors are mentioned purely to emphasise the miracle of Jesus' sudden appearance in the room. Well, Jesus has just conquered death and sin. Getting past a locked door, though certainly impressive, is not really such a big deal in the context. The fact that the doors were locked in itself probably doesn't strike us as odd. I suspect that most of us are generally behind a locked door when we're at home. But that says a lot about the society that we live in. In Jesus' time, it would not have been normal for a group of people to be gathered in a house with the doors locked. The disciples kept the doors locked because they were lying low. They were in hiding, in fear for their lives. Thomas is remembered as doubting Thomas because he refused to believe in the resurrection of Jesus until he had seen it with his own eyes. But the other disciples had seen the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes. And they were still living in fear and doubt. I have a degree of sympathy. 
News as astonishing and miraculous as that must have been quite difficult to take in. Even having seen Jesus with their own eyes, the disciples must have gone away thinking, did that really happen? I recently applied for a promotion at work. It was a big promotion, two grades above my current grade, and there were a number of more experienced candidates for the job, so I didn't expect to get it. But it was a job I really wanted, and I hoped the experience of applying would help prepare me for other opportunities in the future. The application was in three stages, a written application, a written test, and an interview. I thought I'd probably be unsuccessful at the second stage. In fact, I was unsuccessful at the first stage. So, uh, but it turns out that the majority of applicants were also unsuccessful at the first stage. So following a review of the process, the first stage was scrapped and we were all put through to the test stage. The test was difficult, but somehow or other I passed. I was one of four candidates put through to an interview for probably one, but possibly two posts. A couple of weeks after the interview, one of the strongest candidates came over to ask if I'd received my result. Surprisingly, he'd been unsuccessful. Oh, I thought, maybe I'm in with a chance. One of our other colleagues, he added, had been successful. Oh, I thought. (laughs) Probably not, then. By now, others had gathered round to see how I'd done. I opened up my result. Congratulations, it said. We'd like to formally offer you this job. I know it said that, because I read it several times. But when someone asked me how I'd done... I didn't answer. I just pointed at the message on the screen. I wanted them to read it for themselves because I couldn't quite believe it myself. I was stunned. For a while after that, I was a little reluctant to say anything to anyone about it because I still couldn't quite believe it. It hadn't really sunk in. What if it's all just a big mistake, I asked myself. Even though I'd seen it with my own eyes, I doubted. So I went on as if nothing had changed. I wonder if that's a bit how the disciples felt after seeing the risen Jesus. I wonder if that's why they were still in hiding in a locked room a week after seeing the risen Jesus for the first time. I wonder if that's why they still needed to receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost even though Jesus had already breathed it into them in that locked room. And I wonder if we aren't all a bit that way with our faith sometimes. We may not have put our fingers on the nail marks in his hand and put our hand in the wound in his side as Thomas did. But I suspect that many of us, perhaps all of us, have encountered the risen Jesus somewhere in our lives. But have we allowed it to transform us? Or do we go on living as if nothing has changed because we've let fear and doubt creep into our thoughts? Today's reading from Acts shows us what a difference it made when the disciples finally allowed the truth that they had witnessed to transform their lives. No more hiding away behind locked doors. Now they live their lives openly. No more trying to protect what they had from those who would try to take it away. Now they gave everything away willingly and shared all that they had gladly. People saw how they lived, 
and it was testament to the truth they preached. I'm sure there's something in that for all of us as individuals. But I think there's also something in that for us as a church. Many years ago, we were given a vision of a building transformed, with doors open to the community. At the time, many of you will remember, we had those three big sets of wooden doors at the front, all invariably closed, most, uh, most almost constantly locked. Many people have worked hard over many years to make that vision a reality. And look at us now. It can be easy to let fear and doubt creep in. But now is the time to let the truth transform us, to raise our eyes to the heavens and to live in the knowledge that we are on the winning team. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Amen.